Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. Good morning. We're continuing on in our service this morning, Faith of Our Fathers, which is talking about the pillars of the some of the great achievements and discoveries, rediscoveries of the Protestant Reformation of the church that took place about 500 years ago. And today we are going to be looking at the impact that the Reformation had on worship. This may be the most significant practical transformation that took place during that era. It was the first and greatest venue, venues like this, the the public gathering of God's people, in which Reformed understanding of scripture, reformed doctrine, was first translated into reformed practice and experienced by the people. And, and it's where the Reformation caught fire. It's where the people got a taste of God's word unleashed on them and uh, started to take up the cause of reform and to change the church. We're gonna look at that this morning. Uh, The reformers had a phrase that encapsulated the changes that they felt God's word demanded be made in worship of that time, and it was this phrase, finitum non est capax infinity. The finite cannot contain the infinite. This was their principle, for the grid through which they ran the, the worship that they had been brought up in and came to judge it as idolatrous and was the grid through which they made their, the changes that they made. Now, many of the changes that they brought about in worship at the Reformation are with us still today in our worship here. We model our worship at Clearnote after the Reformed tradition. Now, that That's not necessarily good in and of itself because traditions can be good or bad, but this tradition has this as its goal, to worship God in no other way than he has revealed in his word. That's a good goal. That's a good tradition. And that's what we try to hold to here and we follow after our Reformed fathers. Traditions, though, that go unexplained get lost. We can lose them. And so we want to work this morning to try to understand what the Reformers did at their time to change and revolutionize worship and so that we can understand the blessing we receive from them so that we can hang on to it and appreciate it. In order, so I hear this popping. Is that what Stephen's worried about back there? Okay, I'm not to worry about it, he says with his hand. In order to appreciate the things that we've inherited from our Reformed Fathers, we first need to understand what was wrong with the 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 practices that they had been grown up, that brought up in, in the Roman church. And in order to understand that, we first need to, to spend quite a bit of time here at the beginning laying some the groundwork for a proper understanding of scriptural worship. What does the Bible teach about worship? How do we come to understand what God's will is for worship from the scriptures? So we're going to look here at the beginning at several passages that are going to help us get a handle on this. The first is from John Chapter 4, verses 19 to 24. If you have a Bible, turn to John chapter 4. These verses come in the middle of Jesus' encounter with the Samaritan woman at Jacob's well in Sychar. 
Jesus has been talking to her about the water of life. You'll remember this conversation. He then turns to the topic of her sin. He opens that up for her. And then she responds with something of a non sequitur, but nonetheless a really interesting question. And this is what she says, John chapter 4, 19 to 24. The woman said to him, to Jesus, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So we have a question put to Jesus by the woman, and we have Jesus' response to her. She wants to know where is God properly worshiped? That might seem like an odd question to you and me because we're accustomed today to worshiping God in any number of places. We go on vacation, we can worship God in another town. We can go to another country and find Christians there and worship God there. That's our experience today. That was not the case in that time. Why was it not the case? It's because they were living under a different covenant. And that covenant had different regulations and rules, procedures, for worshiping God. God established his old covenant on a mountain, on Mount Sinai, and there in the midst of the cloud, he, he gave detailed instructions to Moses to build him, to have Israel build him a house in which to dwell. Here's what he says in Exodus 25, verses eight and nine. He's speaking to Moses, let them construct a sanctuary for me that I may dwell among them. According to all that I'm going to show you as the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furniture, just so you shall construct it. God ordered Moses to build him a sanctuary so that he would, could dwell among them, a place where he could live, where they could come to him and meet with him, hear from him. And Israel was to build this just so, according to the pattern that God revealed to Moses. Every detail of this place, the dimensions, the wall colors, the materials, the furnishings, did you hear that? Even the furniture was chosen, carefully prescribed by God himself. You can read all about it in the last chapters of the book of Exodus. It's really interesting. What was the sanctuary like, this house for God? It was ornate. It was highly decorated, it was expensive, but the key to understanding what it was like is this. It was symbolic. Every aspect, every detail of this tent represented something. Material things that were given by God to point to spiritual truths. Material objects and things designed by God to point the people to spiritual realities beyond them. Here's just a few examples of how this works. There's many examples. Every detail of this place is fascinating from the perspective of what it's pointing to. But here's just a few. The way this tent was to be oriented was to the east. There was one door, one entry point, and it was pointing east. Now what's the significance of that? Well, you remember that Adam and Eve in the garden enjoyed uninterrupted, unmediated, direct fellowship with God. 
They walked with God and talked with him and fellowshiped with him face to face in the Garden of Eden. You remember that? And then when they sinned and were driven out of the garden, they were driven out, it says, to the east. And then God positioned cherubim there at the eastern wall or the entrance to keep them from coming back into the garden. He blocked the way back to the life and fellowship that they had enjoyed before. So now in the tabernacle that God designed, the entry point is facing east, showing the pe- teaching the people that God was opening a way for them back to the life that Adam had lost in the garden. That's just, just from the angle of positioning. This is something that the, te- the, the people are taught. But that's not all. Also, the way this space was meant to be used was symbolic and pointed to spiritual realities. When the people came in from the east, what did they meet with? Well, they met immediately again with cherubim. Cherubim who were blocking the way into the holy of holies. They were stitched, two great cherubim were stitched on the, the veil that separated the holy place from the most holy place. In fact, they couldn't even get as far as that. The average Israelite couldn't even come in beyond the outer court. Only the priests could go into the tent proper. So they could come to the outer court if they qualified according to the law and if they brought with them the appointed sacrifice according to the law. But God was not teasing them, you know, sort of cracking the door open and saying, look, remember all the the good stuff you lost in the garden? Well, you still can't have it. That's not what God's purpose was. He was teaching them. What was he teaching them? He was teaching them that the way was indeed reopened to the life that Adam had lost and the fellowship with God that he had enjoyed. But now it was because of their sin, it was open only through a mediator, a go-between. Somebody who could work in between the offended God and the offending sinner to bring reconciliation and peace. This mediator was actually depicted in lots of different symbols, all bound up in the priesthood. God took one tribe of the sons of Israel and he set them apart from the rest and he ordained their men through elaborate ceremonies for the office of serving as mediating priests between the sinner, the sinful people and the holy God. And so the 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 person who qualified and brought the right sacrifice could come and enter the, the, the courtyard and the priest met him there and, the, and they sacrificed together and the priest put the, 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 the atoning sacrifice on the altar and sprinkled the blood around according to the law. And this priest was essential. It was commanded by God. He did exactly what God commanded him to do. And God was teaching the people through this symbol of a representational figure who was not, in fact, more holy than them, just a sinner like them, but God set them apart through ordination and through holy garments, white garments, purple garments, gold garments, representing purity and the glory of their office to serve symbolically in a reconciling manner between God and the sinner. And that priest could go into the tabernacle and bring the the petitions, the prayers of the people before God, could offer the incense on the altar. God was teaching them that their relationship with him depended upon the work of another. 
Spiritually, he was teaching them, as, if, as the faithful looked through this picture, he was teaching them to look to the one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. That's what the priests represented to the people, if they could see with faith. So every aspect of this was representational, material things pointing them to spiritual truths. And important for understanding our passage in John, it was theirs. This, there was not another one of these tabernacles down the street for the other neighborhoods to go to, the other people groups, the other nations. This was God's gift to Israel. It was theirs. This tent went with them wherever they went, or rather they went wherever God told them to set it up. It was with them for 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. It went with them into the promised land in the conquest of Canaan. And then under David's leadership, it was moved to, the, to Zion, Jerusalem, or at least the ark, the most holy object in this tabernacle, was, was moved to Jerusalem. And after David moved it there, his son Solomon was authorized by God to build a permanent dwelling place there in Zion. And that's how the temple was built in Jerusalem a place for the ark, a place for God's glory to dwell. And if you recall, when this temple was um, commissioned in this big commissioning service, Solomon prays that God's blessing would be upon this house and that God through it would hear the prayers of the people. And then what happened? God moved in. He showed up in the, in, the, in the form of a great cloud. He descended into the tabernacle and filled it. It was so full of smoke, the smoke of God's presence, that the, the priests couldn't even see to do their work for some time. God dwelt there. That's the point. And he made himself known there. And he made himself known there through material things that pointed to spiritual realities. The very similar, many of the same spiritualities that we know and understand under different terms and different symbols and different concepts today. Justification by faith. They had depicted for them in an atoning sacrifice for sin. So if you wanted to worship God and be a part of this, take advantage of the temple and its services, you had to go to Jerusalem. And if you wanted to participate fully, you had to renounce citizenship in any other country and join yourself to the people of God, which you could do. And God was willing then to call you a Jew if you would choose him and own him as your God. That is, that is what the, the pagan, half-Jewish Samaritans refused to do. They lived just a little bit ways to the north from Jerusalem, but they maintained their own worship. They continued a, an idolatrous practice that had, they had inherited from the ancient king Jeroboam when the, the, the kingdom was divided into two, north and south, and there was war between them all their days. Jeroboam set up two high places in the north so that the people didn't have to go to Jerusalem anymore to worship God. So they thought. And they were idolatrous centers of worship. First of all, because they were not authorized by God. God did not choose to reveal himself to those places. And because they were just idolatrous. They called their God Yahweh, but they, they represented him to the people through the form of a golden calf. They were idolaters, these Samaritans. And that argument 
that caused a lot of tension between the Jews and the Samaritans, and that was going on even in Jesus' day, this tension between them about which of these peoples had the right place to worship God going. So when the woman asks Jesus, our fathers worshiped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. This is an implied question. Which is it? You're a prophet, so tell me, which is it? And Jesus responds to her in verse 22, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. You see what Jesus is saying? He's saying an awful lot in a few words there. <laughs> He's saying, you're, you worship in ignorance and you're an idolater. We worship the true God in the true way because salvation is from the Jews. He's revealed himself here to us in Jerusalem. But that is just a glancing point that Jesus makes in this passage. The real heavy lifting of this passage comes around it. He says in verse 21, Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Verse 23, an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. So here's the logic of the passage. Soon, even now, not on this mountain and not on that mountain, but in spirit and in truth. Now, what does Jesus mean by in spirit and truth? This sounds very important to, to understand. But what does he mean? If that's all we had to go on, we'd probably be struggling to have a very good, good idea of what he means. But as, as always the case, scripture interprets scripture and Jesus' own teaching becomes clearer through the, the witness of the apostles after him. In Acts chapter 17, we find the Apostle Paul preaching at Athens to the Gentiles. And he is appealing to them to turn from idols to serve the living God. And here's what he says in the middle of his sermon. In Acts 17, verse 24, The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. Okay, whoa. If you're looking at this from an Old Testament assumption, that's a really bodacious claim. Especially in light of what God himself has made clear. He said, remember in Exodus 25, build me a house that I may dwell among you. And here's the apostle Paul saying, God does not dwell in houses made with human hands. Now, we find Stephen, the first martyr, who was on trial for preaching about Jesus, saying the exact same thing earlier in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 7, verse 48, he says, The Most High does not dwell in houses made by human hands, as the prophet says, Heaven is my throne, and earth is the footstool of my feet. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what place is there for my repose? Was it not my hand which made all these things? So do you remember what Stephen was on trial for in the first place? Speaking against the temple, or at least that was what he was accused of. The, in Acts 6, at the end, it says, his accusers say, this man, Stephen, 
incessantly speaks against this holy place and the law, for we have heard him say that this Nazarene Jesus will destroy this place and alter the customs which Moses handed down to us. Now, was Jesus going to destroy this place and alter the customs which Moses had handed down to them? He was. He had said as much in his life. He was reported as saying that a lot of times in the Gospels. One example is in John chapter 2, where Jesus said, destroy this temple and and in three days I'll raise it up. Very offensive. One of the most offensive things Jesus said. And even though his disciples later on came to realize that Jesus was speaking figuratively about his own body, that he would be destroyed and that he would raise again on the third day. He was also speaking literally about this temple and was prophesying about a day when it would be destroyed. That was coming soon. That happened in 70 AD, not long after his resurrection. It was utterly destroyed by the Romans and hasn't been rebuilt. Why, though, why would God want to tear down his house? That's, that's the question. Why would God, who had so carefully planned and designed this house, want to tear it down? Well, there's a lot, of, there's a lot bound up in why. A lot of why is because of the sin of his people and his disgust of their idolatry and their abuse of, and reject, first of all, sometimes their rejection, utter, outright rejection of his ceremonies in the tabernacle, and sometimes their abuse of it, looking to it rather than through it in faith to him. But really, the time had come for the world to know that God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. He had a better house planned. He was erecting a new and a better house. A spiritual house for God. Not that the, the, the Jerusalem temple was an unspiritual way to worship God. This is, we have to be careful as we think about this. The, diff, the distinction between the Old Testament is not unspiritual and spiritual. It's more nuanced than that. It was a spiritual way to worship God because God himself had appointed it. And he had appointed it as a way of communicating his goodwill and grace towards his people, his commitment to them, their way of reconciliation with him through these material things. He had appointed that for their use. And if they participated in it with faith, then they were were, um, worshiping God in a spiritual way at that time, according to that time, and it served its use for them. But something greater had come now in its place. A truer temple had come. A greater priesthood had arrived. A higher, better altar was built. A better and more perfect sacrifice for sin. A whiter lamb, a richer blood was here. Jesus had come. The true temple, the true lamb, the true altar, all the, the culmination of all these things. He had come, the fullness of time had arrived, 
and it was time to do away with all the things that merely pointed to him. The true thing, the perfect thing had come. And his coming brought an end to the ceremonies of the old covenant. And a new covenant was established in his blood. Not the blood of bulls and goats, but in the blood of the perfect lamb of God. And it speaks better still than the blood of Abel. But, okay, so Jesus is the temple. He's the sacrifice. He's the priest. Jesus quickly left. And so if we got on board with Jesus as the fulfillment of all these things, and then he's resurrected and not long after leaves, what are we left with? How do we worship God without our temple? Well, what we find in the New Testament is that, as you know, we have a temple. God has not left us in Christ's absence without a temple. There is a place on earth where Jesus still dwells by his spirit, where he makes himself known and he communicates his grace to sinners. That's what the tabernacle did. It was a place where he made himself known and where he communicated his grace to sinners. And there is still a tabernacle, a temple here today. Where is it or what is it, first of all? What is this new temple? 1 Peter 1 verse, sorry, 1 Peter 2 verse 5 says this. You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. What is this telling us? We are the temple. You and me, all the faithful who gather together in Christ's name, are the new temple, a dwelling for God by the Spirit. We are living stones being built up together into a spiritual house for God by his spirit. We are a priesthood that God has raised up. This was, this was one of the huge cataclysmic rediscoveries of the reformers as they thought about worship and what God would have them do as they met in his name. They realized that all of us are priests to God. All of us have straight access to God through the Lord Jesus Christ. All of us are made worthy in the same way. There's no special holy class of person other than someone who believes. And if you believe, then you too are a priest. That's what the New Testament teaches. And the only sacrifice that God requires now, no more bloody bulls and goats, no more turtle doves. What does God require now? No, no. No longer even any wheat or barley. All the sacrifice God requires now is the fruit of our lips that give praise to God. We respond in thanks to what God has done for us in giving us the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, and we give praise to his name. And God, and even that is made acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. But that's all God requires. And even what lacks in our singing is made up for in Jesus Christ. It's made pleasing to God through him. That's what the temple is in the new covenant. Where has God commanded this temple to be built, to be positioned? Well, the biblical answer to that question is wherever. Used to be Jerusalem, now it's wherever. Wherever what? Jesus said in in Matthew 18, where two or three 
have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. The temple, the tabernacle was the place where God dwelt, and now he dwells wherever two or three of us gather in his name. That's all it takes to have a temple. Two or three of us gathered together in his name to meet with him. What are the ceremonies of this new temple? What are the actions God would have us perform in his house now? You know, Luther, Martin Luther, one of the early reformers, was fond of saying that the New Testament does not, does not contain a new Leviticus. The New Testament does not contain for us a second Leviticus. The first Leviticus was what? Incredible detail about how God was to be worshipped. <laughs> Way more information than most of us have the patience to, to read and study. Lots of detail, lots of prescriptions. And the New Testament does not provide anything, anything like that for us. We just don't have anything like that to go on today. We're not left with with nothing by any means. But it's important to realize something radically different has come. Why would it be that we would not have a second Leviticus in the New Testament. Here's, this, is, this is one of the important points from this sermon that I have for us today. Unlike the worship of the tabernacle, our fellowship with God in the new covenant is no longer bound up or mediated through symbols and material things. Externals is what the reformers referred to them as. Externals. Under the old covenant, God appointed externals many, many, many of them, and a little bit of teaching and and preaching from the prophets on the side. But the main gig, the main approach to God was through through stuff. That was the main thing. Does that make sense to you? And that was good because God appointed it for its use. But then he was done with it because he was on to something better, something more true, something more spiritual, something more immediate. We have grace from God communicated to us primarily now, not through symbols, but through his word preached. Old Testament worshipers had the gospel communicated primarily through symbols, types and shadows, and more dimly because of it, with teaching and preaching on the side, and we have it the opposite way. We have it primarily through the preaching and proclamation of the gospel, which is words, with one or two simple symbols attached. We're going to participate in one of those symbols this morning here. That's a key to understanding this shift that Jesus is indicating in John 4 when he talks about worshiping God in spirit and truth, as opposed to not on this mountain or on that mountain. Jesus departs. He pours out his spirit. The first and primary thing that the spirit does is what? Remember the last thing that Jesus says, the very last thing that Jesus says before he ascends to his father in the book of Acts, chapter one? He says, well, I'm not gonna quote it exactly. I'm not that good. But he says something like, wait in Jerusalem 
and you will be filled with power by the Holy Spirit, and you will become my witnesses. The witness of the apostles becomes the primary mode which God uses now to create new worshipers. Remember it says, Jesus says, the Father is seeking new worshipers to worship him. This becomes the way the Spirit gets those worshipers and, in an ongoing sense, nurtures them, maintains them through their life. It's the way the Spirit builds the temple of God is through the witness of the apostles and then the, the record that they left of their witness and their writings, which are consistent with the prophets before them. But the word preached becomes the primary thing, the powerful thing, the thing through which God most communicates his will to his people. Does that, that make sense to everybody? That is one of the great discoveries that the reformers made as they opened up their Bibles and considered what God would, how God would have them worship. This totally reoriented their thinking about what worship was and how to do it. They looked around them at the worship that they had been brought up in, the worship of the Roman church. It was piled high with what? with ceremonies, with externals, with stuff. The focus in the Roman church was all on stuff. The stuff of buildings, the stuff of the sacraments, the stuff of priests, the stuff that priests wear, the stuff that priests say, the stuff, matter, symbols. And the reformers had to work very hard and often risk their lives to unclutter this for us and recover for us worship in spirit and in truth. The worship that's surrounded or or oriented around God's word. So take, for instance, the, the Latin service, the Latin liturgy. What is a liturgy? It's, it's just the words that are used in worship to, to lead the people in worship. But at the time of the Reformation, it was all in Latin. And Latin was like an academic language that smart people who were educated could com- communicate with each other with, and it was useful for them. I don't, I don't begrudge them that device. But that's what was being used in worship to communicate God's grace to the people. And very few people knew Latin. They came, I suppose, convinced that whatever was happening and whatever was being said was important and they were benefiting, but they didn't understand what was being said. They couldn't, because they didn't speak Latin. So have you ever heard of lorem ipsum? I know Ben Crum has. It's like a sort of a made-up gibberish Latin. Sounds like Latin words, but it's just filler text for your website that you're building so you can see how the paragraph's going to look on the page, right? Lorem ipsum. You can go online and generate some fake Latin, just like I did, and I'm going to read you some. So imagine if, if Pastor Moyer had stood up this morning and he was dressed in a, like a white robe with all of these ornaments and, and, you know, and a censer, and he said this to start our worship. Lorem ipsum dolar sit amet. Consecutor, adipiscine, elite, morbi, sed, ultrasis, lugula, incongua, arcu. And this is what you got all through the service. 
every Sunday. That just gives us a little taste for how much we have received and how good it is that we can hear Pastor Moyer speak in a language that we understand and he wants us to understand him and he's speaking mostly just the words of scripture to us. That's not something we should take for granted. Remember what Paul said about tongues to the Corinthians? In the church, I desire to speak five words with my mind so that I may instruct others also rather than 10,000 words in a tongue. Well, the worship of of the medieval church was 10,000, 10 million words in a tongue and not, not five words meant for edification. And, I, and so what, is, what are they thinking? Well, they're thinking that these words are somehow magic words that please God and that are an offering we make to God. That's the only sense you can possibly make out of why they're doing this. Nobody's understanding or very few people are understanding, including not very many priests are understanding. A lot of times these priests bought their way into the priesthood. Their parents bought it for them. They inherited a a priesthood. And they weren't educated. It was just a good living. And they didn't understand. They just memorized the words. So what do the reformers do? One of the first things they did is they translated the liturgy so that people could understand what was being said. Now, they couldn't just leave it as it was because... some aspects of the liturgy. A lot of them were good. A lot of it's just straight scripture. So a lot of things could stay in and there wasn't a problem with them. But there were some things that taught, centered around this meal here that were particularly unscriptural and idolatrous. So let's move to this. Here's a symbol that we have that the Roman Catholic Church has too in its form. And we're gonna participate in it this morning. But the 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 whole service of the, Roman Catholic, of the medieval church and still the, Rome, uh, the service of Rome today is centered right here. This is the point of the Roman Catholic service. And why is it the point? It's the point because they think something really amazing is happening right here in fact. And that is, if a priest who's lawfully ordained says the right words in the right way and is dressed according to the, the law of the, of the church when he does it, that this becomes the literal body and blood of the Lord. Now, if that were the case, I'd center my worship around this too. You know, I mean, that's like, that's like, that's like a huge thing. <laughs> but the reformers looked at that and they said, hold on, they said, Finitum non est capax infinity. <laughs> God who made heaven and earth does not dwell in temples made with human hands. He does not dwell in that bread and that wine. That's bunk. That's idolatry. That's how they judged that. And now a good, they, they the, uh, the, the, Sorry, what the, what the Catholics were doing, the medievals were doing, is they, were, they thought that this was an offering being made to God. 
They thought that this was an offering that we were making to God, that the priest was the authorized person to make it on behalf of all of us. And so they taught that Christ was being sacrificed anew. Now, a good Roman Catholic apologist today is going to say, oh no, we don't teach that Christ is being re-sacrificed there in the Mass. We just believe that his sacrifice is being renewed. They're really, they're really sophisticated like this. They come up with concepts like renewed and venerate to get around um, our accusations against them. But the key is, fine, okay, I'll, I'll grant you that argument, Mr. Roman Catholic apologist, but still, what you think, the whole orientation of this meal is from us, the sinners, to God. And that is exactly contrary to the word of God. Jesus himself, when he gave this meal to his apostles, do you remember what he said? Take and eat. The whole action biblically of this table is from God to us. God is giving us this food. We are not giving God anything. (laughs) He is supplying for our need. He is reaching low to assure us in our faith and our walk with him that he wants to fellowship with us. That's what's symbolized here in this meal. God giving us grace. And we respond with the sacrifice of praise. We give glory to God. That's, that's the highest we rise to in terms of sacrifice or offering to God. We give thanks to him for what he's done. So they abolished the mass. That's what this was called. The service centered on communion, which is the high point of the Roman Catholic service. They abolished it all and they called it idolatrous and they completely reoriented the service around what? The word of God. They started preaching the word of God and they put preaching right at the focal point of worship. That was the point, the thing without which you didn't have a service. This, there was debate about how often it should be participated in. The Roman Catholic Church did it every Sunday at least and also other times. The reformers weren't so sure exactly what scripture required there. They all did it with some frequency, some more than others. But what they always did without fail was they preached the word. They gave testimony to the witness of the apostles by preaching the word. And in getting rid of the the mass, they also, as I said earlier, rediscovered the, the doctrine of the priesthood of believers that there is, no, there is no continuation of a special class of men separate from the others who are priests on behalf of, of, of other believers. That's no more. That's Old Testament ceremonial representational look-through stuff. No more of that. We have Jesus. We look to Jesus. All of us can do that. The minister, that's the office that they restored, the, the pastor, in place of the priest, his job, pointed by the people in accordance with the gifts of the Spirit, was to preach the word so that the people could commune with God. That was the way the reformers believed primarily we commune and fellowship with God, the way he communicates to us his good intention is through his word. And it's 
the pastor had no ceremonial representational clothes on. They just dressed like whatever the, that was expected of them at the time, whatever was the appropriate for their station as a member of society. I don't know if this is the appropriate clothes for me or not. This is what I do. But it's not representational clothes. I'm not trying to get you to see Jesus in my jacket. Now, that's, it's, it's funny, but it's, they're people we know that, that think these things and are into this kind of approach to worship. There is a, I, there is a lot of pressure in the Reformed Church today to move more towards an Old Testament approach to worship. It's sophisticated, but it's happening. And we need, to, we need to remember what the genius of the Reformation was. It was God's word and the, the, the revolution that came to worship that's given us the many good things that we enjoy today and, and are, are blessed by today and are strengthened by is the is is it's God's word preached worship centered on his word the churches themselves let's just talk a little bit about the buildings they considered them to be sacred spaces and they were built on holy ground and how were those spaces made sacred and the ground holy well they had ceremonies for that including a liturgy an order of service just for that and the cleansing of the ground and the building, the consecration of it with hyssop branches, just like the Old Testament. They dip them in, not blood, but holy water, water that had been blessed by a holy man, a priest, and they'd sprinkle it around, and that church would become holy, a sanctuary. Now, the reformers looked at that, and they said, bunk and double bunk, that's... that's these are utilitarian buildings for the true work and the true building of God's people together into the spiritual house. Tons of money, tons of years, tons of energy went into building these great cathedrals. And the reformers didn't tear them down, by and large. They didn't tear them down. They made use of them. But what did they do? They went through and they cleaned house like you wouldn't believe. In fact, the reformers didn't. The reformed people did. They got a taste of what God actually said in his word, and you could not stop them demolishing the idols in the churches. Actually, a lot of the leaders were very uncomfortable with the pace that it was going and catching fire. The people themselves were causing political problems for the cities and for the city government because they were so zealous to get the idols out of the church. The, the church of Rome was filled with idols and icons and statues and paintings and relics. Stuff, matter, that they thought pointed them to spiritual realities, but in fact God had not appointed in his word and were idolatrous. And when the people found out about this, they just started smashing them. There's a great book called War Against the Idols, if you want to read the history of it. It's really a good way to understand the whole Protestant Reformation politically is, and spiritually combined is this war against the idols that the people carried out in destroying the images. What they wanted was utilitarian spaces like this. 
they were, con- I mean, it was nice to have a, a beautiful building. Actually, there wasn't much heat in St. Peter's Cathedral or in, uh, in Geneva. It got pretty cold there in the winter. It'd be nicer with heat, but it's a pretty majestic building. But I was just recently on tour with the band, and we got to see an impressive building, let me tell you, in Princeton. Princeton Chapel. Chapel is something of a misnomer for this building. It makes you think of just a little thing in the country, but it's, it's, it's like as big and grand as any Gothic cathedral in a, in a major city. It's just on the campus at Princeton. It's not a Roman Catholic church, but it's not an evangelical church. And I, you couldn't help but be impressed by it, but I also was sitting there thinking... This is the kind of church you build when you judge God's word to, to be insufficiently glorious. You got to do something to have the glory. You got to be impressive somehow. The Protestants were, the reformers were impressive through their words, through the truths of the scriptures. God's word was unleashed and it was glorious. I mean, it was awful. <laughs> It was violent, it was risky, it was dangerous, but man, there was no shortage of glory in their preaching. For anybody who had ears to hear, it was absolutely transformational, powerful stuff. But if you're not going to have that, you've got to have something, and so you're going to build buildings that are monuments to your idol. You're not going to please God with a building. What makes this building glorious? The barrels? That wall back there, Stephen? Is it uh, the subwoofers? We don't have subwoofers. That's a a little passive-aggressive comment there. But if we had subwoofers, would that, I mean, are we lacking in our worship because we don't have subwoofers? That's a serious question. Are we lacking in our worship because we don't have a light show? That's a serious question. There are two directions, really, in which we can fall off the, the, our commitment to worshiping God in spirit and truth through his word, through the agency of his spirit by his word. We can go in the sort of lowbrow evangelical direction, which is light shows and big screens and celebrity pastors. What do I mean by that? Well, if we get everything dark out here and we get everything bright and colorful and patterned and moving up here, we have created an image that's just... I guarantee you, if I had a, a, an honest lighting designer up here, that's what they would tell you their goal is, is to create an experience, an, an image, as it were, on the stage, like a painting. I used to go to, don't judge me, but I was weird in college, and I went to contemporary dance concerts. I was really into this. Jen was raising her hand, or her thumb. <laughs> she approves. I was really into it. And what I, one of the things I loved about it most was how you can really create a painting, as it were, a moving painting through 
through light techniques, lighting design, and movement. That's what a lot of churches are doing. And that's the kind of thing you do if you judge God's word to be insufficiently glorious. That's a, that's a harsh thing to say, but I think you need to think about this. We need to think about this. We're building a new space. Lord willing, we'll come into some money someday and we'll be able to do all that we want to do. And we better be careful what we do. Because it has implications for what our focus is and how we, what we think brings power and effectiveness to worship. Does that make sense? Medieval Roman Catholic worship and Roman Catholic worship today, I'm going I'm to introduce you to, and probably most of you, to a new word, was sacerdotal, priestly. Every, almost every aspect of it was a priestly approach, a mediated approach to God through some kind of human or material thing in this world. And the reformers recovered for us the concept, the truth, that we don't need that. All we need is God's word. We need God's word. We need it proclaimed. And all the power that we need, all the grace that we need, comes to us that way. Yes, and also through one or two humble, simple elements on the side attached to it, but subordinate to it. They don't have any power in of themselves. They get their power and their meaning through the truth that God has proclaimed in his word. There's nothing here except what God has revealed in his word. And if you believe it by faith, you can have everything he promises in the meal. But there is no possibility of faith without understanding. And, the, and faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So that was the commitment of the Protestant reformers. That needs to remain our commitment. There's a couple of pressures at work in a couple of different directions pulling us, tugging on us, wanting us to go either more towards Rome and really what is just an Old Testament form of worship sacerdotalism, priestliness. It worked back then, but God's done with it. Or we could go into technology, mediating our relationship to God with technology, getting more of his grace theoretically through lights and through subwoofers and through awesome bands. And what we have to learn to do is walk that very delicate, difficult middle path of of trusting God in his word. Now, here's my exhortation. Don't grow weary of us preaching. Don't grow weary of the ministry and the simplicity, the humility, whatever it is that you grow weary of in, in the ministry of the word, don't. Don't take it for granted. Find it precious. Make a principle out of finding it precious and defend it, and make sure that we don't give it up as we move forward as a church.